Hey, Unnaturalists, I'm Emily. I'm Andy. And this is Unnatural. Welcome back. Yes. It's been a long week. It has been a long week, but at least we're into April now. You know what they say, April showers bring May flowers. And there's been plenty of showers. Yes. We're looking on the positive side, though. And Emily, this case is actually kind of positive in a certain sense, if you look at it that way. This is a case that happened 46 years ago. Yet some new information just came out in the last couple of weeks. So I thought it would kind of be interesting to do a deep dive on it. In July of 1976, 26 children and their bus driver, Ed Ray, went missing in Central California. Three masked men had hijacked Ed's school bus. And their reasons for doing so, along with how they did it, left residents in the area and the nation itself in complete shock. This is the story of the Chowchilla bus kidnapping. So, Emily, like many of our stories, this one takes place in a relatively small American town that you've probably never heard of. Yeah, Chowchilla is in California, but it's hundreds of miles away from the glitz and glam of Hollywood. Mm. And it's about as different from the city of San Francisco as any town in the country can be. It feels more like a Midwest town than a California town. We know all about the Midwest towns. We do. We can relate to a town like this. And it's in Central California. And the most famous thing about the town of 18,000 people before the kidnappings was probably that it's home to not one, but two state penitentiaries, a men's and a women's. Oh, how lovely. How exciting for them. Right. So that's its claim to fame here. So Frank Edward Ray was born in February of 1921. And he spent most of his childhood and adult life in the town of Chowchilla. As one does. He was by rights. Yeah. A lot of people just grow up there. They never leave. Every time you say the name, I think Chinchilla. And then I just picture like the fuzzy little creature in my head. (laughs) I'm sure there's some chinchillas in Chowchilla, right? I don't know. Were they or where were they indigenous to? I don't know. We'll have to look that up. But he was all, by all means a nice and upstanding dude. He really loved his community so much that he wanted to give back in whatever way that he could. He was a full-time farmer and raised animals like cows and he grew a number of crops as well like corn. But he also took many of the kids to Dairyland Elementary School in the morning as a bus driver. And then he would pick them up after a long day late in the afternoon and take them home. 
as most bus drivers do. Right. Have you ever ridden the bus to school? Well, yeah, I grew up in the country, so I I took yeah. the bus to and from school. Me too. And I have some very vivid memories of my bus drivers. One of my bus drivers was named, her name was Stubb. Mm. And she was about four foot ten. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's how she got the nickname. Uh, another bus driver I had, his name was John, and he was ethnically Russian. And anytime a kid would misbehave, he would always say, "You sweep the bus. You sweep the bus after we stop." <laughs> and I gotta tell you, Emily, I had to sweep the bus all the fucking time with that guy. Oh no. But we digress. So Ed was a pretty great bus driver. He had been driving the bus for many years. And unlike some of the bus drivers that I mentioned that I had as a kid, he was regarded as one of the best around. And by the time we get to the meat and bones of this story, he had been doing it for over 20 years, I believe. And Like he had been there for so long, Emily, that he would stop at a bus stop and say hi to the parents who were dropping their kids Uh off. And those parents had also been patrons on his bus when they were kids. Cute. (laughs) So the dude was kind of a mainstay in town and he knew what he was doing. He knew his routes inside and out. He mainly had kids on his bus between the ages of 5 and 14, and by all accounts, he was beloved by them. That's why when one day, after picking up the kids from the second to last day of summer school on July 15th, 1976, when he noticed... Oh, is it really? July 15th? Mm -hmm. Wow. Shout out to Oliver. Well, July 15th, 1976, he noticed that there was a white van parked in the middle of a desolate road. It's always a white van. Always. Exactly. How many times have we gone through this? Every time. (laughs) It's always a fucking white van. Well, he knew something was off when he saw the white van, as you and I would, because we've talked about white vans so much. I don't trust a white van. You never trust a white van. So not only was there one white van, but after getting a bit closer and parking, Ed saw another white van nearby. Now, he kind of figured that maybe the vehicle in the middle of the road was having some sort of engine trouble or something. Mm-hmm. So he, br- he brings the bus to a complete stop. And as soon as he does that, All of a sudden, three men jump out of the white van that was directly in front of the bus, and they charge their way inside. Now, they were... We flex, but okay. Right? Now, they were each wearing ski masks. Actually, they were wearing not just ski masks, but masks uh, made from women's pantyhose. Mm -hmm. They were all armed with guns. And one of the assailants put a gun right to Ed's head and told him to raise his hands and move away from the steering wheel or else he would be shot. So, of course, 
at obliged and one of the other gov- gunmen uh, took control of the bus. Mm-hmm. So the gunman starts driving the bus while the other two are uh, patrolling the aisle. And this entire time, all Ed can think is, how am I going to protect these kids and get them out of this horrific situation? Yeah. And also, he's thinking, why us? What could they possibly want with 26 kids and a middle-aged bus driver? What's the motive here? There is none, really. Yeah. I mean, mean, you can't figure it out because they haven't said anything. So the bus drives for hours and hours, Emily. And all the while, many of the kids are, as you can probably expect, starting to get confused and scared. Mm -hmm. Some of the older children, in order to calm the younger kids down, begin to sing some of the songs of the day aloud. They start singing the song, Boogie Nights. And Mm -hmm. Captain and Tennille's love will keep us together. And even their own spin on the song, you know, the song, If You're Happy and You Know It, Clap Your Hands. I know it. So they all too well. Right. They start singing that, except they replaced the word happy with sad. So, oh my God. I know. I know. But also, like, just think of how brave those older kids are like you're in like you're still a child yourself and you're in this awful terrible terrifying situation and you're still gonna kind of be able to do that to like keep everybody distracted isn't that amazing mm-hmm. i could never i would not well you say you could not but maybe when you're thrust in a situation like that you know i doubt it di- <laughs> Well, one can only surmise, I guess. But eventually, it's pitch black out, and the bus arrives in a giant quarry. I'm sure you've seen giant quarries where you live, and Mm -hmm. this one is pretty damn big. And it's near the town of Livermore, which is actually about 100 miles away from where they were kidnapped. So it's a ways off, and they have gone through a lot of hills and mountains to get there. So this took hours and hours. And the gunmen, they kind of near a giant chasm in the ground. Mm -hmm. And Ed can see that there's something buried inside of it. Now, what is it? Well, it's a large moving truck where Ed and the kids would be forced into and buried alive. Oh, no. Ed and the children 
are slowly escorted into the dark moving van by a ladder from the top. Now inside are a number of old dingy mattresses. There's also quite a few large water jugs in there and some food in there as well. So once the final child is inside, the hatch door is closed, shut, leaving very little light inside, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. And for me, I'm kind of claustrophobic anyway, so that would be just a nightmare. I can't imagine. That would would absolutely give me the collie wobbles. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. Not only the collie wobbles because of, you know, the darkness, but the small enclosed space as well and the lack of breathing room. Yeah, it's a no for me. Yeah, same. And it gets worse because not only is there no light inside, but then they begin hearing this large pummeling sound of patches of dirt being thrown onto the top of the van. It keeps going on and on and it continues for what seems like hours until the van was completely covered with earth. No. So they are absolutely buried at this point and breathing was becoming increasingly difficult and many of the children began sobbing uncontrollably. Mm -hmm. Remember, there's kids as young as five years old here. I hate that. They're just babies. Yeah. And they don't know what's going on. Mm Mm-mm. And even Ed himself finally kind of let his guard down a little bit. And even he began crying because he believed he believed that they're they were doomed to suffocate in yeah. inside this makeshift coffin. And that was until one 14-year-old boy declared that he wasn't going to just sit inside this van and die. If he was going to die, he said he was going to die trying to escape. Darn right. What a badass. Right? And this kind of brought Ed back to his senses. And he, along with a number of the other boys, began stacking all of the mattresses on top of each other until Mm -hmm. they finally reached close to the top of the van. And the 14-year-old boy then climbed to the top of the van near its ceiling and quickly realized that the hatch had been weighed down by something very, very heavy. Now, mm-hmm. now that was later discovered that it was two 100-pound tractor batteries, which were what? weighing down on the hatch door. Tractor batteries? Yeah. What the fuck? Where do these guys even get the shit? Right. Like, they have a truck buried that they bury all these people in, and then they have two big-ass bat. Like, Why? <laughs> Well, and we'll get to this later, but remember where they are. They're inside a quarry. So there's probably a lot of different kinds of vehicles inside this quarry. Still. And I'm guessing that's, you know, they just... Still. Took it from some of those vehicles. But some of the children below began breaking apart one of the mattress box springs. Mm Mm-hmm. And they started hand handing some of the splinters of wood to the top so the boys could try and dislodge the hatch door and pry it open. Yeah. But eventually the boys and Ed had to stop because they were just 
almost to the brink of death of extreme heat exhaustion, mm-hmm. you know, due to the cramped quarters that they were in and it's just summertime in California. Yeah. Can you imagine? And so much so that some of the kids began to pour some of the jugs of water over Ed and the other boys just to kind of keep them conscious. It was at this point that things really seemed to be at their lowest and all hope really appeared to be lost. And to make matters worse, as if they couldn't get any worse, the roof of the van slowly began to collapse. No. And that... That was due to the excessive amount of dirt that was already poured on it. Mm-hmm. But then the group all kind of pushed together in unison on the door and it budged. Yay. So they did it again mm-hmm. and it broke open. And it broke open into the earth. The earth started, you know, spilling into the van itself. Ed helped lift one of the older boys out of the van and the kid got out into fresh air and one by one, they got every single one of the 26 kids out of the moving van after a terrifying 16 hour imprisonment. Oh my God. That had to have been the longest 16 hours of their lives. Can you imagine what it was like and what it was like for them to get out of there finally? Especially kids that young, you know, the age of five. Yeah. Oh, my God. The next thing they had to figure out is how the hell to get out of this quarry. Remember, they didn't even know where they were. Right. And in the darkness, Ed and the kids made their way through the quarry until they saw a faint light. So they moved toward the light and realized it was a small shack that was guarding the entrance. And for me, I would probably be a little, you know, on edge wondering if this was the right place to go, if maybe the perpetrators were there. Yeah, that's what I was literally just thinking. They did go there and they alerted the guard who actually seemed completely beside himself as to them being there, and he quickly called the police. Good. Once the local police arrived on the scene, they honestly were just befuddled, and they couldn't believe what had happened here. Once they found the moving van, they were absolutely just mortified about what had happened to these kids and to Ed, and obviously relieved that they had escaped. Well, it had been 16 hours. Like, hadn't parents started asking questions? They had. Oh, absolutely. Parents were calling. And remember, this is 100 miles away. So parents were calling local authorities. and But the the, the authorities in this town obviously had been privy to what had happened. And the investigation into who was in charge of this kidnapping, it, it didn't really take very long... Because one thing was pretty clear to investigators, whoever was responsible had to have had access to this quarry. Right. So pretty quickly, investigators were able to locate the quarry owner's son. 
And that was a, a man by the name of Frederick Newhall Woods. And three names. Right. He was known to have access to the quarry pretty frequently during the summer. And once they found Frederick, police were able to quickly locate his two friends. And they were the brothers James and Richard Schoenfield. And they arrested all three of them within a couple of weeks after the initial kidnapping. And the story really began to unfold before people's very eyes. They found the bus in a thicket nearby that was pretty deliberately put there. And this disappearance also kind of indicated that um, at least two people had to be involved wanting the bus or wanting to drive the bus into this thicket and another to guard the youngsters. There were also vehicle tracks on top of the bus and there were tire tracks in the sand nearby. Now, many of the worried parents waiting at the uh, roadside kept an all-night vigil Mm -hmm. at the Chowchilla police station. Once they found them, they were obviously very relieved. And the crazy thing is, is everybody was wondering, Emily, why were they kidnapped in the first place? Right. What did this all lead to? Well, it turns out that these three guys were in it, shockingly, Emily, for money. Oh, you don't say. Yeah. So here was their grand plan. They thought that they would drive 100 miles south, kidnap a bunch of kids because the more kids they kidnapped, the more money they could get. And they had a lot of debts to pay off. So they thought if they kidnapped, you know, 26 kids and another guy, they would get millions of dollars. And they wanted to demand $5 million from the local authorities, right? Oh, my guys, when does that ever work out for anybody? Right. And here's the funny thing. Once they buried the kids and Ed inside the bus, they tried calling the Chowchilla Police Department. But guess what? Hmm. The police department's phone lines had already been inundated with phone calls from all of the kids' parents and family members. I'm sure. And they couldn't get through on the police line. So after a number of hours, they just gave up and went to sleep. And by the time they got up and everything, guess what? The kids They had escaped. Yeah. So, I mean, it was a a completely, completely fruitless kidnapping here, and they were all charged and all went to trial and convicted, and they all stayed in jail for many, many years. As they should. Yeah. I mean, you might even say that they should all be in jail for life, but- In 2012, Richard Schoenfield was released from prison. In 2015, James, his brother, was paroled as well. Now, the main culprits, Frederick Woods, as we mentioned, 
he was kind of the motivator behind this kidnapping. And he had been continuously denied parole yeah. over the years. Uh, he remained in prison for a long time yes, until a few days ago. Ugh. And Frederick Newhall Woods, who is now 70 years old, was just made eligible for parole a number of weeks ago. His 18th parole hearing was held on March 25th at California Men's Colony, which is a uh, state prison in California. Now, Mm -hmm. he first became eligible for parole in 1982, according to uh, some inmate information that I found. Uh, The proposed uh, parole decision by the hearing panel, it looks like it's going to be... become final within about 120 days. And after the parole decision becomes final, the governor of California has 30 days to review this decision. He can either allow the decision to stand or refer it to the board in California for kind of a full review, it looks like. Mm -hmm. And he can only reverse a parole decision if the inmate was convicted of murder, which obviously Woods wasn't because nobody was murdered in this case. So it looks like he's probably going to get off. very attempted murder. Yeah. So in all likelihood, he's going to be getting out of jail very, very soon. And that's kind of an update on a case that has been in the public's eye for nearly 50 years now. Kind of crazy. Wild. It is wild. What are the kids up to today? Well, it's Do it's we funny. They had a documentary uh, during the 40th anniversary, and they all kind of went over their trauma and mm-hmm. what their lives oh, were God, like afterwards and how it impacted their lives. And it's very, very interesting. You can check it out on YouTube. We'll have to put the mm-hmm. uh, link in our socials. But um, as you can imagine, even at a young age, if something like that happens to you, it's going to affect you for the rest of your life. Now it's time for the you unnatural palate cleanse. Okay, I'm going to ask kind of you something and I want you to online be or maybe talk to other Where people. Emily and Andy bring about you their own unique and offbeat entry from around the world today. Well, it's been a while actually since we've done a palate cleanse, right? Yes. Well, this one is from ranker.com and I'm not going to give you the full list here, Emily, but it's it's pretty interesting. I'm sure you're aware of ransoms and ransom notes, and I was kind of doing a deep dive on those, and I found a few of the weirdest and most disturbing ransom notes in history. Are you ready for some of these? I feel like any ransom note is going to be weird and disturbing because it is a ransom note, but... right. If there's a list of them... Well, like, one of these you're definitely going to be familiar with. Uh, I'm not sure about the other ones, but... Uh, Ramsey. We'll start in 1973, <laughs> and there were nine members of the Calabrian Mafia, which is in Italy, and they abducted a guy by the name of John Paul Getty III. Did you ever hear of this case before? I had vaguely heard of it. Maybe. So he was the grandson of an oil tycoon 
and he was actually on vacation in Rome, Italy. He was just 16 years old when the mafia took him and they grabbed him and took him to a mountain hideaway. And soon after, his family received a ransom note asking for $17 million. $17 million? Well, probably because they knew that they could pay it. Because, again, his grandfather was an oil well, yeah, tycoon. Yeah, but still, that's a pretty yeah, hope, steep ask. Hopefully they loved him that much. Um, <laughs> so at first, Getty's grandfather refused to pay the ransom. But the next letter came, and it received another threat and it actually had already paid off on one of the threats. They had chopped off one of Getty's ears. His ear? Yeah. How old is he, did you say? 16. 16. Oh, poor baby. And this is what the ransom said. This is Paul's ear. If we don't get some money within 10 days, then the other ear will arrive. In other words... He will arrive in little bits until you send us the money. So... horrifying. Yeah, horrifying as fuck. Getty's family reluctantly paid the decreased ransom, and their son was safely returned. And Italian authorities... Minus one ear? Right, minus one ear. I just looked up some pictures of him. So it actually was his ear. Yeah, it was his ear. Um, and I think he recently died. Let me look here. I was looking him up. Yeah, John Paul. Yeah, he died. Well, he died in 2011. But if you look him up online, you can see the pictures of him without his ear. And it looks pretty fucked up. So, How do you spell his last name? Uh, G-E-T-T-Y. Oh. John Paul Getty. The images, yeah. he's Even as an older guy, he looks really weird. Wild. Right? Italian authorities, they did convict two of the kidnappers, but like I said, there were actually nine in total, and it seems like the other seven were either got away or just were acquitted entirely of this case. Huh. How do you get acquitted? I know. Well, I guess, uh, you know, maybe uh, the ear isn't so bad. I guess you were just trying to teach him a lesson. I don't know. But either way, it's Italy, so who knows how the justice system works there. Yeah. That brings us to the second one. 1934, an unknown man abducted a six-year-old girl named June Robles. Now, June was the daughter of Fernando Robles, who was the owner of the Robles Electric Company outside of her school in the city of Tucson, Arizona. And after, after the kidnapping, the man paid a young boy nearby a quarter to deliver a note to Fernando Robles. And that note demanded $15,000 for June's safe return. The unknown guy only referred to himself as quote-unquote Z and instructed Fernando not to speak with police, otherwise bad things would happen to his daughter. And we see that a lot in these ransom cases. Right. Um, so there's quite a bit of back and forth between Fernando and Z and uh, Z cut contact eventually with Fernando and it got so big that the then governor of Arizona got involved Uh, the governor actually received a postcard mailed from Chicago, Illinois that 
gave him instructions as to where June was and where she was being held in the desert. So the governor let his state patrol know about this, and it took highway patrolmen about two hours to find June. She was locked inside a small metal cage and buried under some shrubbery in the desert. Luckily, she... Right? Luckily, she was alive and unharmed. So it sounds like there was... I, I don't know if they ever found this Z guy, but they found her and she was okay. And it looks like the ransom was never paid. It was never kind paid? Crazy, yeah. Kind of a crazy story. I, I feel like I feel like that might be one that we want to delve into in the future. Mm-hmm. You already alluded to this one. Probably the most famous ransom case ever, I would say. Christmas yeah. morning, 1996. Uh, Patsy Ramsey found a two and a half page letter. Um, it was on her kitchen staircase. The letter demanded $118,000 for the safe return of their daughter, Jean Bonnet. Now, here's what some of the letter reads. You will withdraw $118,000 from your accounts. $100,000 will be in $100 bills and the remaining $18,000 in $20 bills. Make sure you bring an adequate size attached to the bank. When you get home, you will put the money in a brown paper bag. I will call you between 8 and 10 a.m. tomorrow to instruct you on delivery. The delivery will be exhausting, so I advise you to be rested. Now, yeah, I took your daughter, but make sure you have a good night's sleep. Yeah, get a good night's sleep because it's going to be a long day tomorrow. Yeah, I, <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, I'll get a good night's sleep after I read that. Fucking lunatic. So the day after receiving the letter, uh, Patsy's husband and Jean Benet's father, Jean, discovered her body in the family's basement. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you've heard that. Uh, many people listening have probably heard this story, but the note itself was pretty weird for a lot of reasons. Investigators said that they really had never seen such a long and detailed ransom note before. Mm -hmm. The paper that the note was written on was actually from a notepad inside the Ramsey's home. That's because Patty wrote it. Mm -hmm. Allegedly. Allegedly. Which meant that it had been written at the scene of the crime, which almost never happens according to the local police chief, Mark Beckner. And he said no wrote, no notes has ever been written at the scene and then left at the scene with the dead victim at the scene other than this case. John and Patsy both provided handwriting samples for this. Do you remember what went down with that? So John was ruled out as the writer. Yeah. While pa- Patsy's sample was inconclusive. Yeah. That's So according to Police Chief Beckner... The handwriting experts noted several strange observations, including that Patsy wrote out the number 118,000 in word form, not in number form. But did she do that in the notes or in the sample? In the sample. Allegedly. Allegedly, yeah. So despite all this weirdness with the ransom letter... Mm-hmm. John and Patsy, they eventually were both ruled out as suspects in their daughter's murder. 
And part of this was because of the giant botching of the investigation by the local and federal authorities. They really screwed it up. Yeah. And unfortunately, because of that botched investigation, her case is still largely kind of a mystery, even though there's about a billion conspiracy theories if you look on the internet for those. Yeah, I mean, there's several solid theories. Yeah. I mean, for me, I've always thought that it was Patsy, but... But I, I feel that like... That killed her daughter or that wrote the note? That wrote the note. and oh, yeah. I, and I, Yeah, and I believe that the dad probably had something to do with it as well. I mean... Well, because... There was evidence on the notepad that there was, like, a second draft. Like, she she allegedly started writing it, scrapped it. Oh, yeah. And started again. Allegedly. 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 That's one we're probably never going to know. Like, if we find out what really happened in that case in our lifetime, I'd be shocked. Same. I find a lot of credibility to the theory that allegedly her brother did it and the parents covered it up. I'd heard that one, yeah. But why would they, like, why would they, I don't know. Well, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, like, accidental deaths of children, Mm -hmm. allegedly, that people try to cover it up because they a don't want to get in trouble or b they don't want to be like subject to public scrutiny because and they already lost one child and then they would lose both yeah yeah like i don't i don't believe the accident theory but i know there's a lot of people that think that kaylee anthony died on accident and casey covered it up because she was just so freaked out yeah. Yeah, like she wasn't watching her. Like there's a theory that I hear a lot is that Casey wasn't watching her and she got into the pool and drowned and Casey found her like dead in the pool and freaked Panicked. out and just like went yeah, went and tried to get rid of her body, but she also left her body in like the back of her car for a Trunk, few days. yeah. Yeah. Wasn't she partying during that time? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was wow, what's that's such a fucked up case. Yeah. Yeah. We're gonna have to cover that someday. Um anyway, moving on. So moving on, final one here. Uh this goes back a few years, February of twenty fifteen. An unknown assailant kidnapped Kara Cawson's African grey parrot, Jojo, from her home in England. Okay. Uh, in his place, someone left a cut and paste ransom note. You know, those ones that have words that are all jumbled together from different magazine articles and stuff. Yeah, like kind of what you think when you think ransom note. Right, right. Well, uh, this one said, want your bird back alive? Text blank, blank, blank. You know, the number. Yeah. Contact police. Bird dies a slow, agonizing death. Okay, so Kassin, uh, she offered two grand for the bird's safe return, although the English authorities made one initial arrest in relation to the abduction. No convictions have ever been made, and sadly, investigators never recovered poor little Jojo. No. Anyway, that's all I got. 
Okay, cool. On Twitter, on Natural the Pod, we have an Instagram page on Natural the Podcast, Facebook, on Natural a True Crime Podcast. You can send us a Gmail on Natural the Podcast at gmail.com. We also have a Patreon page where you will get early access to ad-free episodes, bonus content, and more. That is patreon.com slash unnatural the pod. And as always, be sure to rate, subscribe, follow, and share us with your friends. In the meantime, make good choices. And don't get God. Talk to you next week. And also quite a few jugs of large water jugs. Jugs of large water jugs. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's also quite a few large water jugs in there and some food in there jugs. as well. <laughs> Sorry. Did I say it wrong again? No, but it just <laughs> made me laugh a second time. Because I wrote it wrong the first time. Isn't it, didn't your son want a parrot recently? Yes. Good thing he didn't get one. Maybe it would have gotten abducted. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be mad about it. <laughs> now what? Now let's say your your son did get the bird, and somebody kidnapped and offered a ransom. Would you have paid it? No. <laughs> what do you got against birds, man? I stop. They freak me out. I like them. Like all birds or like just parrots? Most birds. Freak you out? Yeah. Huh. I find them fascinating. Uh, yeah, I don't know same. if I'd ever want one as a pet. Right. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. Especially, well, for me and hey, to each their own. I like them own. when they're other people's pets. I right. like seeing them at the zoo. I love going to lacrosse in the springtime and there's bald eagles yeah yeah i i mean i i like i like birds i don't want one and they do kind of freak me out i held a parrot on my arm one time and i was like huh especially because the whole time the guy who owned the bird was like was like oh she's actually being nice she doesn't normally like women and i'm like get her the fuck away from me then before she Why starts you pecking up my eyeballs put her on me <laughs> Uh, there's a picture of me too holding it and I'm just like I want to see that you know what you should you should find that picture and put it up on our Instagram for this I will